walking through the book of Romans, taking our time just trying to break it down and try to understand it. And I've been saying, and I believe this is a life-changing book, and we've been talking about how this is a life-changing book. We looked at the life of Augustine, we looked at the life of Martin Luther, and saw how those great church leaders were impacted greatly by the book of Romans, by their study of Romans. Look at what others have said about this great letter of good news. John Calvin said, if a man understands it, he has a sure road open to him to understanding the whole of Scripture. In other words, if you understand the book of Romans, it's going to open up the whole Bible to you to get greater understanding. Frederick Louis Godet said in his excellent commentary called Romans that it's, it's the cathedral of the Christian faith. The cathedral, that's something of, of strength, that's something of, of honor. Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, it is the most profound work in existence. Most profound work in existence. Dr. John McKay, previous president of Princeton Seminary from 1936 to 1959, said it seems increasingly clear that the chief need of contemporary Christianity and society in general in this confused and revolutionary time is an evangelical renaissance. Now, get this. He said this in the 50s. By that I mean a rediscovery of the evangel, the gospel, and its full dimension of light and power together with the elevation of the gospel to the status that belongs to the gospel and the thought life and activity of all persons and organizations that bear the name Christian. I mean, that was back in the 50s he said that, and times haven't changed, have they? He was saying, listen, we need to be enlightened to the gospel. We need to understand the gospel. For him, that affirmation came in his study of the book of Romans. And times have not changed. Times have not changed. I had a conversation recently with a few different people who said, Brian, have you noticed how like sin today was like sin the same back then? I'm like, yeah, things haven't changed all that much. I mean, back then, whether it be 30 years ago or 100 years ago or or back in the 1900s, 1800s, 1700s, sin was sin. Sin in the Bible was sin. The difference today, I think, is that now because of technology, we hear about it so much and it's all around us, but times really haven't changed. We still have the struggle with honoring God with our lives. We still have the struggle with, am I going to take and follow the path of sin or am I going to follow the path of God? And I truly believe that we need to rediscover the gospel and how do we center our lives around it? How do we center our lives upon it? That's the heart of this letter. That's the heart of the book of Romans. The purpose is that we understand the gospel and then we center our lives on it, that we redirect our compass, so to speak, so that we're looking at the gospel and saying, what's the gospel saying? That's how I'm going to live. Here's the entire book of Romans in two verses. We talked about this last week. Let me do a little review with, this, with you this morning. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. You say that with me. Say, not ashamed. Not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you can 
get those two verses down. You can memorize them. You can write them on the on a tablet of your heart, so to speak. You get the whole gospel message in, in a nutshell, this whole book of Romans in a very small nutshell. But then what Paul does is Paul says, now, let me just expand on this an entire book of Romans. Let me now break it down further for you. And the gospel, in its most simplest form, just means good news. It's just good news. But I believe what Paul is talking about here is not just good news, it's great news. It's exceedingly great news. I mean, if you came to church today and someone handed you $500, you'd say, that's great news. That's good news. But this is better than that. Someone has a baby this week, you'd say, well, that's good news. Yeah, but this is even better than that because this is great news. It's not just good news. It's the greatest news of all time. That's why I've called this series The Greatest Letter of Good News. My hope for us, church, is that as we open up into the letter of Romans, we open up the book of Romans, as we study it, as we read it, you take it home and you dive into your growth guide with it, you take your growth guide to your growth group and you study with your growth group. My hope is that we break this down and we, and we start diving into it, that we start to make some changes in our life, that we really start to allow it to be the center of our life. But then also as we discover this great good news, this wonderful good news, we say, I'm not going to keep it to myself, I'm going to pass it on. I'm going to share it with somebody else because good news is not made to be kept to yourself. Good news is made to be shared because this is life-changing news. It's eternity-changing news. It's the best news that you and I have ever heard and that we could ever share. Now, last week we started tackling the first 17 verses of chapter 1. As we started to discover six key truths of the gospel, I only covered the first two last week. Let's just review those quickly. Key truth number one is that God gave us the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says, this gospel that I've written, it's not mine. Paul's saying, I didn't make this up. Paul says, this comes directly from God. This is his message. This is his teaching. This is his plan, is what Paul was saying. And then you look at verse 2, he says, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in his holy scriptures. And when you stop and think about that, you say, wait a minute, God gave us this gospel, and there was a plan beforehand. What is the beforehand that Paul's talking about? Paul's talking about before this world was even created, God had a plan. Before this world was even made, God had a plan, and, and He knew that we would need a Savior. And so before the stars were created, before the earth was created, before the, the sun and the moons were created, before we were created, God's like, I've got to have a plan here because I know that my people are at some point going to not want to do things my way. And, and we talked about this last week, that God is not shocked by that. God, God is not a reactive God. What I mean by that is God does not go... Oh my goodness, they messed up. I can't believe they did that. Why would they say that? Why would they do that? God doesn't think that way. Now we do. When our spouse fails us, sometimes we're like, I can't believe they said that. Or our children fail us, I can't believe they did this. Or someone who we look up to as a mentor, we're like, they would never do that. I can't believe they do that. God's not shocked when we mess up. He's not blown away. He understands 
My people are going to fall short sometimes. My people are going to stumble. My people are going to sin. And so God knew that when we created this. says he beforehand, he promised the Holy Scriptures. He's like, this was all part of God's plan. Now, I look at that, and here's what it tells me. It tells me that God cares an awful lot about us. It tells me that God loves us greatly, that God loves us deeply. The thought that he's thinking, before I even create them, I'm going to have this plan that I can put this together so that they will be in unity or in relationship with me or have the opportunity to do that. In other words, you were not an accident. You were planned ahead of time, and God knew about you, and God knew that we would mess up, but God still loved us so much. And the gospel makes all this possible because it's from God and God himself. And so God gives us this gospel. And truth number two we learned last week is that the gospel is all about Jesus. Look what it says in verses three and four. He says, concerning his son, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's he saying? He says, concerning his son. Who's Paul talking about? His son. He's talking about Jesus. And he says, a descendant of David, King David. That's his lineage. In other words, he's pointing to his humanity that, that, he, that Jesus, who claimed to be God, was also in human form here on this earth. And Paul's directing that. He's saying he's the son of God and, and that God is his father and that him and the father, they are one. They are one in mind and one in purpose. And this gospel, then Paul is saying, centers all around this Jesus who is the son of God. And he came for us to what? To take away our sin, to take our place, and because he died, but because he lives in heaven, we now can live. And Paul's like, listen, we got to get this, church. We got to understand this gospel comes from God. It's centered around the life of Jesus. That's the first two key truths. Now, let me walk you through the next four truths today. And I said in first service, I was going to hit them quickly. They didn't quite go so quickly. But we need to work through these because they're of great importance as we understand this whole letter. Here's key truth number three. The gospel is what moves us to obedience. Look at verse 5. It says, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring us to the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, you read that. And you focus in on that word obedience for a moment with me. How many of us would raise your hands and say, I love that word? Most of us don't. Now, if it's involved with me getting my kids to be obedient and they're obedient, I'm like, yes, I love that word. But when it comes to my life, I'm like, I don't know if I like that idea of obedience. We think of obedience and we think of rules we think of punishment. We think of someone trying to keep us in line. When I think of obedience, I think of Mr. McGregor, my fifth grade principal, who would get the paddle out. That was back in the day when it was still allowed, and that paddle was broken more than once over my rear end, and the duct tape that held it together, part of it was because of me, because Mr. McGregor would be like, okay, here you go, Brian, you're going to straighten up. Or I think about obedience. I remember going home sometimes, and if I got a whipping at school, you got the whipping at home. Dad would say, all right, Brian, we got to talk. And I'd be like, no, Dad. And Dad would get the belt out. 
And I had a few of those on my rear end. Obedience. So when I think of the word obedience, I'm like, I don't like that word obedience. And unfortunately, we then transfer that to our relationship with God. And many times people think of God as a controlling God, as a rule-oriented God. And God wants to bring us into obedience. And Paul's saying, this is not what I'm talking about. Paul says, this is obedience of faith. The NIV says obedience that comes from faith. So it's an obedience that comes because my faith is growing. It creates in us a faith a faith that has a desire to live and please God. Paul's saying, you don't obey God out of laws and out of rules, because remember, he's trying to bring together a Gentile culture, and he's trying to bring together a Jewish culture who, who would have lived by rules and laws, and he's trying to bring them together underneath a grace culture, and he's like, we want to obey God and have obedience out of faith. We move away. What happens is, is when we start to say, I have to do this. I have to go to church. I have to behave this way. I can't do this. I can't do that. Then we reduce our, our Christianity to a bunch of laws because I have to or because I can't do. And that's not the gospel message. But that's what a lot of us have taught or that's what a lot of us have learned through the years. Matter of fact, I was raised in a culture where there was rewards for memorizing scripture. There was rewards for being in church. There was rewards for being in Sunday school. There was rewards for attendance. And the purpose of those were really to kind of teach like these are good practices, but they became a a law abiding like, okay, if I do really good, I get the reward. And that's not what Paul wants to happen. He says, I want you to obey God because you love God. And obedience that grows from faith. Here's an example for that, for instance. I, I never dreamed of being a preacher. Never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing. Matter of fact, if you knew, my, knew me in my teen years, some of you would be like, I'm shocked that he's a preacher today. I, I look back to my teen years and sometimes run into some old friends from them and, or hear stories, and, and they're like, you're a preacher now? Really? Is that really happening? How, how did that happen? You know, like, like what took place? And, and I just had an attitude many times where I wanted to push back against God's ways of living. I, I wanted to do things my way. Now, many of you all were there in your teenage years, weren't you? Y'all are, just don't want to be honest. You're like, I'm not admitting anything. Many of you were there, and many of you would probably push back more than I pushed back. And some of it wasn't just teenage years. Some of it was into your 20s, and some of it was into your 30s, and sometimes we still continue in our 40s and 50s. We're like, I'm, I'm going to push back against God, and I'm not going to follow His ways. I'm not going to do His way. I'm going to do it, do it my way versus following God's standard and His way. I, I, I knew of Jesus growing up. I made a commitment to Jesus at the age of 11, but my life of following Jesus and becoming obedient to Jesus didn't really start to take off until I started to know Jesus. And when I started to know Jesus and grow in Jesus, then I desired obedience. Why? Because I wanted to please Him. When you start to understand who Jesus is, then you say, wait a minute, I want to please him with my life. When you meet Jesus and you understand what he's done for you and you understand your sin situation, you understand your sin situation being taken away, you start to have a hunger, desire, a desire to, to love Jesus and to serve Jesus and to obey Jesus. And so then your obedience grows out of faith, not out of rules. My father-in-law... Many of you know, Mike Johnson would tell me many times, Brian, when you preach, just introduce people to Jesus and don't hammer on what their shortcomings or their sins were. 
And as I get older, now I'm starting to really start to understand that. I can sit and tell you all the time, stop doing this, stop doing that, quit doing this, start doing this, start doing this. Does it help? It doesn't help, does it? What helps is more people understand the love, the grace, the mercy, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When we start to really grasp that, we start to understand that, then we go, maybe I need to adjust some things in my life. Maybe I need to get this out of my life. Maybe I need to stop doing this. But we're not doing it out of rules. We're not doing it trying to earn His love. We're doing it because He loves us so much. We say, I'm going to make some changes. Why? Because I want to honor Him and I want to respect Him as the Lord of my life. That's what Paul is talking about here. When you love God so much, you say, I, I want to do what is right, not because of legalism, but because of love. Not because I have to, but because I love God so much, I get to and I want to. Paul's saying things, our mindset then starts to change. See, when a person comes to Christ, it changes you. In church, it's a lesson for us to learn that Paul's saying, teach people about Jesus, help them walk in faith in Jesus, and then you'll see lives begin to change little by little. That's the gospel. Obedience comes from faith. Key truth number four is that the gospel is for everyone. Look again at verse 5. Verse 5, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among... What's the next word there? All the nations. It doesn't say some of the nations. It doesn't say a few of the nations. It doesn't say just America or just China or just Mexico. It says all of the nations. In other words, Paul's concern was it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter whether you are white, whether you are black, whether you are brown, whether you are yellow, whether you speak Hispanic, whether you speak Chinese, whether you speak English, whether you speak Eastern Kentucky. He said, it doesn't matter. Some of you all understand what I'm talking about. He says, it's for everyone. Everyone. And you know what everyone means? Everyone. That's, that's deep today. Everyone means everyone. Look what he says in Romans 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the highly educated and to those who want to fight. I'm under obligation. Both to the wise and to the foolish, those who really get the studies and those who are not the sharpest crayon in the box. He says, I'm under obligation, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Remember, Paul's not with the Roman culture. Paul is somewhere else preaching and teaching and planting churches, and he writes this letter, so he says, I'm sending it over to them. Why? Because the gospel is for all nations, not just in the area where I'm preaching and teaching, but it's for everybody, those in a civilized world and those who are outside the civilized world. Every human being... Gospel's good news. It's great news to the wise and the foolish, Paul's saying. To all people everywhere. The idea here is the idea of being a debtor. You understand the idea of what a, what a debtor is, at least in one way for sure. See, I think there's two primary ways that we become in debt to somebody or to some organization. One is 
alone. If you come to me today and say, Brian, can I borrow $1,000? I may say, here's $1,000 when you're paying it back. You now have entered into a what? A debt relationship with me. Or when we said, we're going to build the building down there, and we didn't quite have the cash, and someone came to church and said, I'll loan you this money, 0% interest, but what, we, what were we? We had a debt relationship. We had to pay the person back. And praise Jesus, it's paid off. That's in a debtor relationship. We owe a debt. There's another way to owe a debt. We owe a debt when someone trusts us with something that we're supposed to pass on. Let me give you an example of that. If uh, someone has a Michael Jordan signed basketball and they bring it to me and they're moving out of, say, the city of Lexington, they're moving to Florida, but their friend John is coming to town and he says, John's going to come through and you take that basketball and you give that to John for me. And if I make the commitment and say, okay, I'll take that basketball, it's in a nice glass case, Michael Jordan signed on it, it's worth like $5,000 right now, but in some years down the road, it may be worth way more than that because of who Michael Jordan was and how great he was. I'm not going to take the thing out of the glass case and like, okay, let's do some dribbling and practice my drills and do some shooting. No, because I'm indebted to my friend who entrusts me with the basketball who says, you take care of it, you pass it on to John when he gets here to Lexington. Because I have no responsibility that I have accepted and said, I'll pass that on. That's the gospel. What Paul is talking about here is that we are in debt. We are debtors to the gospel that when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, we accept Him as Lord. Then what we've agreed to is that I receive salvation, I hold on to it, but I don't hold on to it to keep it for myself. I hold on to it to what? To pass it on to who? Everyone. To everyone, to, to everybody. Freely we have received and so, so freely we give. Freely we come to the cross and so freely we let others know about the cross. Freely we are saved and so freely we tell others about how to be Saved. That's the gospel. And Paul says, I, I don't hold that on to myself. That, that means the person at work who drives you absolutely crazy, who you would rather not see, who you don't want to hang out with, you know what? You have a responsibility. You received. It's your responsibility to what? To give for uh, your neighbor who drives you nuts or and I was putting this together. My neighbor who loves stray cats. And you all know I'm not a cat lover. But loves stray cats and has been feeding a stray cat in its backyard. And the paper plates blow over to my yard. And then my dog chews them up. I have to go pick them all up. And I've been wanting to pick all the plates up and just throw them back over the fence and go, that's your junk. Oh, it gets a little worse though. When last Sunday... Our growth group finishes, and at 10 o'clock at night, we're ready to go to bed, and we hear our dog going crazy, and our dog got in a tussle with a skunk because the skunk is looking for cat food. My neighbor, I didn't love him so much at that moment. But this gospel is for them too, and it's my responsibility to carry that to them. And so I'm copying this message. I'm going to send it to him. Say, watch this. Just kidding. It's for the person who you think they're not interested. 
They're not going to listen to me. They, they've, got it all. they've got their life. There's no way they're going to listen. It's for the educated and it's for the uneducated. It's for the people who are going to get it and the people who, who are not going to get it. Here's what Paul says to the church in Colossae. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Or I like the NIV says, perfect in Christ. The way you're presented perfect in Christ is to be underneath the blood of Christ. And so we have a job that we proclaim to who? He says, everyone, teach everyone, that we present everyone. And Paul says, for this I toil, struggle with all his energy. He says, this is done in his strength. And so I got to work in God's strength that everyone would be presented perfect in Christ. It means I got to get everyone I can to know the blood of Jesus and to live underneath the blood of Christ. Paul says, this is for everyone. Now, I wrestled with this first service, and so the decision was already made whether I should share this or not. But I think it's important for us to have a really honest conversation. And this, is, this was not in sermon notes at all. This was just a, a thought as I was going through. I was like, God, do I share this? Do I not? This week I had a conversation with somebody that was one of those conversations where the preacher had to sit on his hands and kind of bite his tongue and like, okay, just try to really listen right here. But the conversation with someone who had been looking at, is the center point supposed to be the church for them, not supposed to be the church for them, so forth. And they had heard some of our mission vision series that we did last fall, talking about how we're going to go in the neighborhoods, how we want to reach out to the neighborhoods, how we want to reach out to to people who are struggling financially and people who are hurting and people dealing with addiction issues and struggling issues. And the person looked at across the table and me and said, you know, I think that's okay for y'all, but I'm just not sure how much we should be doing that because I'm not sure how much difference it's really going to make and will people really change. And I was like, okay, what do I say, God, right now? Because inside of me, I just wanted to crawl across the table and I wanted to grab them and shake them and see, are you serious? Paul says this gospel is for everyone. And this gospel changes lives. And if we ever quit believing that it's for everyone and that, it can, and that it can truly change lives, then let's just close the doors. Let's quit wasting God's money. And that conversation was just in my brain over and over and over this week going, God, are there really people out here who say they believe in Jesus and they're Christians? And they're like, yeah, but this can't change everyone. Because that's what I heard from the person sitting there. It's like, yeah, some will change, but is it really going to make that much a difference in people's lives? As long as I'm the preacher here, we'll continue believing that the gospel can change everybody's life. No matter where you're at in the journey. And some will say, does that mean I can overcome this, overcome that? Quite possibly, and maybe not. Because Paul said, I had a thorn in my flesh, and whatever your challenge is, you may never overcome it, but I'll let you know, you'll still be loved in this place. We'll still walk with you in this place. We'll still help you pursue Jesus in this place. Because we have to believe, church, we must believe that the gospel is for everyone. And may I just say to you, as kindly and as gently as I can, if you don't believe the gospel is for everyone and you believe that, well, maybe for some, but some are just never going to change, you're welcome here because we hope God would change your heart. 
But if that is your place and you're like, I'm going to put my feet down and I'm going to just stay in that place forever, then this might not be the place for you. Because there's like 300 churches in Lexington and there's a lot of churches in Lexington. You can go and just sit in a pew, sing some songs, hear a sermon, go home and be happy. And if that's what you want, that's fine. But this is not probably the place for you because work continue to believe that the gospel is for everyone and the gospel will change lives and we want to continue to introduce people to the gospel because we are indebted to that message that we carry forward. You all agree with me? You agree with that? We cannot change that, that stance. Key truth number five, the power is in the gospel. Look at verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed. In other words, I'm not embarrassed. I'm willing to carry it forward. I'm willing to speak it. I'm willing to let people know who Jesus is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's like, very boldly. At one time I was persecuting Christians, but now I'm going to stand up for the gospel. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm going to speak the gospel. I just, it just makes me think about the question that we must all wrestle with. And the question is, are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we embarrassed? Are we afraid of proclaiming it? Say, so, well, how do I answer that question? How do I know that? Well, here's how you answer it. How many times did you share the gospel with somebody this week? How many times did you tell somebody about the hope that there is in Jesus or the strength that there is in Jesus or the rescue that there is in Jesus? How many times have you shared the greatest news that's in the entire world? How many times have you stopped with somebody and said, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Because most of the time, what's happened in American church culture is we're terrified to speak the name of Jesus. We're terrified to let someone know who Jesus is. How can I speak Jesus in my workplace? I might lose my job. How can I speak Jesus in the school? This might happen. How can I share Jesus? No, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. He says, because that's the power of God. See, when, when you share the gospel, you're speaking words of power. When you tell someone who Jesus is, when you explain to someone how to live in Jesus, when you tell someone how to walk in Jesus, when you share the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you're speaking words of power into somebody's life. And Paul says, for salvation, which means deliverance or healing or wholeness, he says, listen, you're speaking deliverance into someone's life. You're speaking healing into someone's life. You're speaking wholeness into someone's life. And he says, everyone you meet needs the gospel. Everyone you meet needs deliverance from something. Everyone you need, meet needs healing from something. Everybody you meet needs wholeness from something. And John Bunyan said, the power is not in the gospeler, it's in the gospel. And so are we willing to speak it? Because many times we're terrified. How do I say that? What am I going to say? And that's a great place to be at. Lord, I'm terrified to say this right now, but Lord, tell me what to say. I'm going to say I'm, I'm, I'm opening my mouth right now. I'm going to speak Jesus. And you sit back and see him do it. See, the power is in sharing it because the gospel changes lives. It's the power to save. It's the power to bring wholeness. It's the power to change lives. It's the power to move people from darkness to light. Power, that word power in the scripture there, in the original language, is the word dunamis. Dunamis means what? Dynamite. It's like Paul is there saying, 
this gospel, I'm not ashamed because it is the power to change lives. Boom, as the explosion takes off. So he's saying, he said, when you speak the word of God, the dunamis, the, the dynamite is going off into someone's life because you brought the power of God. But there's another interpretation of that word power. And it's a word that means prescription, which I think is a very interesting way to translate the word power. But when you see the word prescription, all of us have had an opportunity to get a prescription. Now, today it's done on the computer. So you go see the doctor and the doctor says, I'll send a prescription over to pharmacy A, B, or C. And so we don't have to worry about it. But it wasn't too long ago when you go to the doctor and you're like, doctor, I'm sweating, I have a fever, my throat is sore. And the doctor says, you have strep throat, you need a prescription. You need some medication to help you get better. The doctor would pull out a little white pad of paper. Do you remember those days? Not too long ago. And they would scribble something on that piece of paper and they would hand it to you and you look at it and go, I don't know what it says. But what would you do with that piece of paper? You would protect it with your life. You weren't going to lose it because you were taking it where? Down to the pharmacy. And you would do that immediately. You would read from the doctor's office to the pharmacy, drop it off, and Lord willing, can you get it to me quickly? I'll wait, I'll wait, I need it, I need it now. Why? Because you knew that prescription, in that prescription, what was written on a piece of paper, it was life. There was healing. There was power in that prescription because the doctor had written out just what you needed. You know, that's the gospel. You can actually read that text there in Romans 1, 16, and say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the prescription of God's salvation. It is the prescription that has the, the dunamis, the explosive power that when someone knows Jesus, they're set free, they're, they're saved, they're, they're released, they're taken out of bondage. Truth number six, righteousness is available through the gospel. See, without righteousness, we are facing a sin death. Without righteousness, we are facing a, an eternal separation from God forever. Because Romans 3.10 tells us that no one is righteous, no, not one. Which, that's not good news. The good thing is, as Paul writes, he not only shares the good news, he shares also the bad news and then brings it back to good news. Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A good, not exactly good news, because that means we have to recognize and go, yeah, that's me. I'm in that place where I've sinned. I've fallen short of God's glory. And, and no one will make it to heaven on their own good works. And in Romans 6.23, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. And we're going to dive into that deeper, but it's a death that's an eternal separation from God unless something is done to pay for our penalty. And death entered the world through sin. And Paul is laying this out and saying, here's our situation, that we are unrighteous and we are guilty as charged because of sin. Now, human wisdom then has crept into our society through time. And human wisdom starts to teach us that I must do some good to balance out my bad. And many times that's the game we play with God. And we don't necessarily do it on purpose, but it's how we start to act. Well, if I do some good, then it washes away some of my bad. For instance, when I was a kid, I remember very vividly having a mindset thinking that God had this huge chalkboard up in heaven. 
at the top of it said Brian Robert Bolton. And he had two lists. Here's the good list and here's the bad list. And over here, every time I messed up, he would just add to that list. And over here, every time I did something good, it added that list. I used to have this mindset thinking, I hope that list is getting really long. Now today it would be some computer system, right? But many times that's how we behave and we act. Well, let's try to weigh out the good with the bad. Things have been going really crazy in my life lately. Let me get some good in there. Can I weigh the scales just perfectly enough that there's enough good to outweigh the bad? That's human wisdom. That's how we think too many times. And I, we just need to understand there is no amount of money. There is no amount of service. There is no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of goodness. Now, service thing is interesting in our culture today because we live in a society that says serve. I mean, you've got to graduate from high school, service hours. Graduate from college, service hours. Serve, serve with your sports teams. Let's go do good things. And that's good, but it's not good when we think that's going to earn my way back to God or balance the scales. We, we were without hope. We were destined to eternity, separated from God, until the gospel came. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by, by what? By faith. The righteous does not live by works. The righteous does not live by a list of me doing good. The righteous does not live by my church attendance being perfect, although church attendance is a good thing. It helps you grow in Jesus. The righteous will live by faith. In other words, if I want to have that right relationship with God, it takes me having faith in Jesus. It takes me having faith in the gospel. I think this verse clearly explains it that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. God made him, the him is who? Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him, God made Jesus who had no sin so that he would be sin for us so that we may become the righteousness for us. Now, what exactly is Paul trying to explain there? And this ties right in with Romans, that, that to be sin. Does that mean that Jesus became a sinner? No. Because if that were the case, then he wouldn't be perfect and he could not be the perfect atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. What that means is what God did on the cross is God took all of our sin like a big old huge blanket and laid it on top of Jesus' shoulders and he treated Jesus as we deserve. So when you look at the cross and you hear about the scourging and you hear about the beating, you hear about the persecution, you hear about the, the ridicule that he went through, God took all of our sin puts it on top of Jesus' shoulders so that Jesus would then take on the punishment and he treated Jesus the way we deserve. So imagine yourself being on the cross. But Jesus took your place. That's good news. That's great news. But Paul is saying that we live by faith so when we put our faith in him, when we put our faith in him, then what God does is he puts his righteousness on us, and treats us as Jesus deserves. The whole thing of Jesus taking our place. 
trading spots for us. God treats us as Jesus deserves. The righteous will live by faith. Now, you've just heard the best news you could ever hear, that God treats you like he treats Jesus. That's news that should change a life. And not only change a life, that's news that we are to share. 